This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. We also host the annual Wake Up Festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. You can also join our free direct access membership program and read transcripts of all of the Insights at the Edge podcasts and search our collection of podcasts with now more than 100 episodes available. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Rabbi Rami Shapiro. Rabbi Rami is an award-winning author of over two dozen nonfiction books, whose poems and short stories have been anthologized in over a dozen volumes, and whose prayers are used in prayer books around the world. Rabbi Rami received rabbinical ordination from the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion and holds a Ph.D. in religion from Union Graduate School. A congregational rabbi for 20 years, Rabbi Rami is currently adjunct professor of religious studies at Middle Tennessee State University. Rabbi Rami is also a featured presenter at Sounds True's 2013 Wake Up Festival, which will be held August 14th through the 18th in Estes Park, Colorado. And for more information on our 2013 Wake Up Festival, you can visit www.wakeupfestival.com. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Rabbi Rami and I spoke about his early experiences of what could be called non-dual realization and how his teachings on non-duality have evolved quite dramatically over the years. We also talked about preparing for dying and teachings and practices that he offers to help people with what he calls dying into the arms of love. We also talked about Rabbi Rami's unusual take on the practice of forgiveness. Here's my conversation with Rabbi Rami Shapiro. Rami, I'm eager to talk to you as somebody who both stands as a rabbi and as a member of the Jewish faith and as somebody who speaks a lot on the perennial philosophy and is often invited to be part of conversations about what all of the traditions of the world actually have in common. So to begin with, I would love to know how that posture works for you, being both a rabbi and a Jew and also someone who cares deeply about this common ground that all the traditions share. Yeah, i tell you something I, I, I wrestle with regularly because people say, well, you're a rabbi. How can you be drawing from Christianity and Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism and the rest of them? But I take my cue from my own Rebbe, my own spiritual teacher, uh, Reb Zalman Shachter Shalomi, who once told me he calls himself a Jewish practitioner of a universal truth. And I found that very compelling. So I sort of think of myself the same way, that what I'm interested in is not so much the common ground. I mean, we could look at, you know, I, I teach comparative religion, and you can look at structures of religion and different ways of analyzing religion and find, and find a lot of similarity. I'm interested in what I consider to be the truth with a capital T, and, and that's what brings me to that perennial philosophy. And then I find that truth articulated in slightly different language, or very different language in some cases, in, in every tradition. So to me, I'm, the, the perennial part is, is you know, the, what I'm really resting in. And when I speak uh, to, to audiences because of my training, I tend to speak of it through a Jewish, using a Jewish language more than, than any other. But I'm pretty bilingual when it comes to this stuff. Or multilingual, probably, really. Yeah, uh, multilingual, yeah. 
Okay, so you, you talked about truth with a capital T and your own work, deep work, in the study of comparative religion. And some people would say that different spiritual paths take you to different places because they have a different logos, if you will. They're built on different assumptions. And other people would say, oh, no, these different traditions, they all take you to this same capital T truth if you go deeply enough. So where do you weigh in on that issue? I would say, yes. Oh, no. (laughs) I would say both. I think that, let's start with the oh, no. Uh, Each religious tradition is its own unique world and own unique worldview. And I think we do a terrible, terrible disservice to a religion when we try to say, oh, this one is saying the same thing as that one. I mean, there's no way to do that on a on a mainstream theological level. For, for example, um, Judaism says that there's one God who chose Jews, who gave his, and it's, and it's literally his, gave his only revelation to the Jews and promised the Jews uh, a strip of real estate in the Middle East as their um, promised land. That has nothing to do with Brahman. So, so the God of, of the Jews and the God of, of uh, or that, you know, depends on which Hindu group we're talking about, but Ganesha or Krishna, I mean, they don't know anything about the Jews. So definitely these are different uh, traditions that take us in different directions. Um, you know, Christianity, though they may claim to have the same God, that's simply a, oh, a PR kind of thing. I mean, the God of Christianity, especially Trinitarian Christianity, uh, has a son. And in Islam and in Judaism, you know, God can't have a son. So I think you have to recognize the difference of the, the different um, qualities and worldviews of each religion and honor those differences by being honest about them. But at the same time, I think that the great mystics of all these religions point beyond the official doctrine to something else. And, and it's the something else that I'm most interested in. You know, when I teach comparative religion at Middle Tennessee State University, I make sure the kids know the differences. When we get to the mystical side of religious traditions, then I try to show what I think all these traditions, all the mystics, are pointing at. So it's that Zen concept of the finger pointing to the moon. We tend to get, we tend to obsess about the finger, and we forget about the moon. But the mystics are trying to redirect our attention. So I think it's both and that each is, is unique, and the mystics are all pointing or leading us toward the same reality. Okay, but even within saying that the mystics are taking us all to the same reality, some people would say, but because different practices are being offered, and because there's a different emphasis, we're not actually getting to the same quote-unquote place. Do you think that's true or not? Well, okay, we'll have to be more a little bit more subtle then. I, I don't think any practice takes you there. So, so I get what they're saying that if you practice Tonglen in the Tibetan tradition, you're going to go, you're going to have a certain experience. If you practice Shikintaza just sitting in the Zen tradition, you'll have a different experience. But my my experience in quotes, and I'll come back to that in a second, maybe. But I, I think there's something beyond my egoic experience. And it's, that's when all the paths end. That's when all the practices cease. That's when I'm just present and there's nothing to call it and there's no system involved. And it's just, you know, that, whatever that is. And I, and I, my, my conversations with people who are, who have a serious contemplative practice and who are also grounded in other religious traditions, we seem to be talking about something you can't talk about ultimately, but we seem to be pointing to the similar, if not identical kind of experience. So so I get what people are saying when they say um, different practices take you in, in a, to a specific place, and they're not all the same. But I think that there's something happens when practice is ultimately exhausted, when you've taken the, the, the road you're following to the very end, but then there's one more step. And that's off the road, off the path, off the system. And so, you, so you're standing in the, the wildness, you know, Rumi's field beyond uh, 
concepts of good and evil that that transcend not transcendent but that um, ineffable realm that I think we open up to uh, when we dare to go one one step farther than our past allows, and that I think takes us to, to the same thing. The problem is the thing it takes us to is like I said ineffable. So. I talk about my experience, and I said in quotes, because really, I'm not there anymore to experience it. I don't know if that makes sense, but, you know, an experience requires an experiencer. But there is that moment that, you know, Rami disappears, and I can't talk about that moment. There's no language for it. There's no, as soon as I talk about it, it becomes an object, and it, there really is nothing um in it that that allows that to happen. It's more of a pure sense of maybe what Ramana Maharshi calls the I I, you know, that that or the Atman, uh, you know, I mean I can throw words at it, but there really is none of them really speak to the experience itself and even the experience itself doesn't really do us any any good. You have to have it and then you go, uh and then you come back. I'm curious because I always love to talk to people really from their direct knowing. And so in one of your books, I was reading that you had a very formative experience, or you could say a very dissolving experience when you were a young man at at the age of 16 of what you called the non-duality of God. And I'm I'm wondering if you can share with us what happened at that age. Yeah, you know, I, I was raised in a Orthodox Jewish environment I went through. I became bar mitzvah at 13, but it was nothing spoke to me. I was looking for something else. And I did what I had to do to maintain my status in my family and the community. But I started to study uh, Zen on my own, which is, of course, absurd, but I did. Uh, especially a book called Zen Comes West by Christmas Humphreys. Humphreys used to be the head of the uh, Buddhist group in, in England, I forgot what they called it. And he told you how to sit Zazen. So, okay. So I did it. I was visiting a friend in Cape Cod. He worked during the day. I had the day free while I was visiting, and I went to uh, sit on the shore, and I practiced whatever I read in that book. And I had, you know, and I, I dissolved. It's just, that's what we're going to say. So um, I disappeared, and I was no longer conscious or and, and I was no longer conscious of not being conscious. I was just gone. And you know what? What I would say is like the you know the mantra of the heart sutra: you know, "Gate, gate, para gate, parasam gate, bodhisvaha." That goes gone, gone, all the way gone, beyond gone. And then I would translate "svaha" as "wow." Um, so I, I that's what happened. And when I came back, I came back. Um, I was going to say hysterical, but I mean that in, in the funny way, not not like hysterical crazy, but just laughing hysterically with this tremendous sense that uh, the universe was a single living entity and we are all part of it. And it was something that, that I, could, I couldn't argue with. It was, you know, you, you know I, I knew it was true the way I knew, the way I know I'm hungry when I'm hungry. I mean, it's just, that's that's the reality. And I spent you know, a lot of time trying to recreate that experience, you know, as a as a system. Like, oh, there must be must be Zen. It must be something that I can do to to have this again. It became sort of a uh, addiction trying to trying to have that experience again. But I've since overcome that addiction. <laughs> I guess I'm in I'm an enlightenment anonymous or something. I don't really care about that anymore. But the truth of the experience, the regime that was left, never left me, and uh, really shapes everything everything that I do, everything I, I think about reality. And I'm curious to know that as your path progressed and you started training within the Jewish tradition, how you made sense of certain Jewish prayers and approaches that seem to come more from a sense of the person and God as being separate. What kind of way have you found into those prayers so that they work for you? Yeah, I didn't. Uh, I found two things. I found, first, the Kabbalistic notion that um, God is the I, is the only I, uh, where it says in the, in the uh, liturgy, um, 
I am, I, you know, I, the Lord is what it would say in, in English translation, but that is not the actual Hebrew. The Hebrew is a, a form of the verb to be, it's first person, um, imperfect future. So it's, it's like, I, the ising, is all there is. And, and I took that as my motto. I mean, in the Hasidic tradition, in the Kabbalistic tradition, this kind of theology is uh, a given. And then somehow you're supposed to reinterpret the prayers as you do them with that in mind. I personally could never do that. I mean, I understood the theology. I experienced the theology, I think, and um, can affirm it. But I could never take the liturgy and and... I spent. I would spend too much time trying to make the liturgy over in that uh, in that image, if you like, and I would never get to the point of surrendering to the actual practice of prayer. So when I so the first thing I discovered was there is a theological non-dual theological position in Judaism, and the second thing I understood I discovered when I became a rabbi is I can rewrite the liturgy, which is basically what I did. Uh, the English, anyway. I left the Hebrew the way it was because I knew that, that the Hebrew could become sort of just a, a mantra um, that you didn't need to focus on every word, though knowing Hebrew, even then I would get tripped up. But the English is what I was working with primarily with my English-speaking congregation, and I just simply rewrote all the translations so that they all sounded uh, Kabbalistic, non-dualistic. And, and I did that for... Uh, maybe half of my rabbinic career. And then I had a different experience. Then I had the experience, uh, just the opposite in a sense of what I had experienced at 16. I had the experience of God as other, as, uh, I don't know if I want to say person exactly, but a personal experience of God as a being with whom I could dialogue. And when that happened to me, and it happened over and over and over again, and, and still actually happens, um, I freaked out. I didn't know what to do because it violated my earlier experience and then it violated everything I'd been writing in the synagogue and all the liturgy I'd created for them. And now I was saying stuff that I felt wasn't the whole truth. It wasn't wrong. It just wasn't the whole. So I had to go in search of a way of integrating these very different experiences that I was having. Um, which I'm happy to talk about if you want, but I'll kind of want. Well, yes. So this is very interesting to me. So, yeah, how did you okay. integrate the non-dual with God as other? Well, what was happening to me was I was experiencing God as mother. And I write about this in my book, The Divine Feminine. And, and I started seeing images of Mary and other goddess figures eventually. And it was just really slowing me. And it's very bad for a rabbinic career if you're going to say, oh, I, I see images of the Virgin Mary. So I needed help. And you don't go to a therapist for this. So I went to some of my, my teachers outside the Jewish world. I went to Sister Jose Habde, who's deceased now, but uh, was a wonderful Catholic nun and Native American medicine woman. And I went to Andrew Harvey. And I shared with both of them what was going on. And my Sister Jose just sort of laughed and said, um, I'm not going to tell you what's going to happen. You have to find this out for yourself and it didn't help me do the integral work. But uh, Andrew Harvey actually sat me down and, and, and said, you know, uh, in a much more flamboyant way than I'm going to say it to you, but he basically said, if God is everything, God is also other. To say that there's non-dual is the opposite of dual is to fall into the same dualistic trap. So you can experience God in a variety of ways, and it's all part of the, the manifestation of that singular reality. So what, when he told me that, it, I just, all my resistance melted. And I found that, no, that was absolutely true. And then when I went back to look at the Jewish uh, theory of consciousness, and there's five different levels of consciousness, the, the fifth level is that pure non-dual awareness. It's just called uh, yechida, non-dual consciousness. But just below that one is what's called Chaya consciousness, not higher with an H, but Chaya with a Chet, a C-H. And that means life consciousness. And that's when you realize at that level where you can have this I-Thou relationship with the divine as a 
part of the of the greater non-dual reality. So it, it sort of clicked in place, and I began to mix in my in my liturgy, my liturgical writing, the two experiences, so that people could could see what I'm going through, and maybe it would reflect what they're also experiencing. But today, I have the same thing when I when I do my chanting practice, when I do my my walking practice, I oftentimes end up in conversation with the divine as if he were other. And then that usually leads to a silent practice, silent sitting practice normally. And then he fades, I fade, and whatever we were talking about before, we had that has no name, that's what's you know, that I think is what's left. Yeah, I heard a woman named Cynthia Bourgeau. Maybe you know her work. She once yeah, defined well. non duality in a way that I really liked. Not two, not one both one and two. And that definition really helped me. And I think often people hear the word non-duality and they think of it as somehow a transcendent denial of the two. And I think you're saying that in your own life, you maybe started there and then discovered something very different. Yes, exactly. I I think Cynthia's definition is is right on. And uh, that, that is my experience. Yeah, we, we tend to think of non-dual as monism. You know, there's just oneness, and that's all there is. But but it's not that way at all. It's not even um, unity versus diversity. It's whatever holds unity and diversity in a greater whole, you know, a greater oneness, non-duality. That that's the ultimate thing. But that allows you to experience. You know, we're sort of mixing languages here, but the yin and the yang, you know, kind of thing within the tai chi circle. So, so these opposites are fine, um, and they and they allow us to um, come back from that evaporation experience and rest in the rishimu and the fragrance of whatever that was, and in that place to to experience God as other, and then to manifest godliness in in our own actions, which ultimately is the, probably the more valuable thing. I mean, the experience or non-experience or whatever we're going to call that translates into behavior when you when you come back. You know, when you when the ego reemerges, it, it ought to. Re- if it's happening the way you know, I hope it's happening, the ego comes back more loving, more just, more compassionate uh, each time it happens, and, and that's how you tell. You know, like Jesus says, "By your fruits you shall know them." So, I mean, that's how you tell if you're becoming more loving. Then the practice is doing what I think it's supposed to do, or, or stepping beyond the practice of doing what that should do. And if it isn't, then something's wrong. I'm wondering how you would track that in your own life, this process, as you say, of becoming more loving. Are there actual markers you could say, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh? I think so. I mean, the person to ask would be, you know, people who know me. It's hard to judge on your own, I suppose. But I think that there were things in the past that would make me anxious that no longer make me anxious. I mean, maybe it's because I'm in my 60s and I just don't care about some of this stuff anymore. But um, a lot of the egoic grasping uh, that that would define my life and that, and that would excuse actions that would, you know, um, where, whereby I might engage people as means to my ends. I think those have, I'm certainly not going to say they're gone. I mean, that would be a very dangerous thing to say. But they're certainly a lot fewer than they were before, a lot less uh, compelling or, you know, the excuses that I might have made in the past no longer uh, work anymore. I can see through those uh, those tricks of the egoic mind. Um, so, yeah, I, I could see, you know, myself being closer. I mean, I want to be the person my dog thinks I am. <laughs> You know, sort of always there, always loving, always staying, always feeding you if you need food. Um, and I think I'm getting closer to that than I was, you know, certainly when I was younger. But again, I, I, I would I would credit that to spiritual work, practice. Uh, it could just be, you know, partly just getting older. Yeah. Well, the process of maturity. Yeah, right. And that, and that may happen. You know, I, and I think... I mean, I, I wouldn't want to say that spiritual work or spiritual practice is all you need to mature. 
I think you need time, you need age, you need experience, but you also need probably therapy. You know, I think that it's that there's a tendency among some of the people that I find myself talking with when I lecture around the country that they think, well, I don't need therapy. I need to get up, get beyond the ego. I don't need to have the ego. I don't need to do the egoic work. But you know, again, again, given that the Jewish understanding, there's these five levels of consciousness, body, heart, mind, soul, and spirit. And that mind level is where so much BS happens. And, um, where, where some of the, the gravest errors that we make are made at that egoic level. I don't mean mind intellectually, I mean mind as in your personal, you know, egoic sense of self. And that's something that, that I, I prefer to go to therapy and have someone really call me on the stuff that's there than chant and meditate, because I think I can just chant like a like paper over those things with my with my spiritual practice. Mm-hmm. So I think you need I mean, you need physical work, you need emotional work, you need uh, ego work, shadow work, dealing with the darker side of your personality, as well as spiritual practice. I really love talking to a rabbi who's not only encouraging people that therapy can be very positive, but clearly it's something that has been important in your own life, yes? Yeah, personally. I mean, just going to therapists, I think, really helps. And, you know, a rabbi would be dumb to to dump on therapy when probably most of your congregation is made up of therapists. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't have a congregation anymore, but when I did, boy, if you if you dumped on therapy or MSWs or you know, then you're in big trouble because that was wait a minute, that's my career. So no, I, I think, but I think on a on a more serious note, that it's absolutely part of a integral spiritual practice. Some idea that people might have, I guess, that a rabbi doesn't need therapy because they've got it together and that they're, you know, here they are, they're wearing the cloak. They have this special dispensation or something like that, a projection from people onto a rabbi. Well, I think most Jews know better than that. But let me me just say categorically and, and globally, every clergy person needs therapy. Being a clergy person is one of the most dangerous jobs there is, and not necessarily dangerous, well, probably dangerous for the person who's doing the job, but also dangerous from the people you're working with, that, that you could be a danger to them if you don't do that shadow work, if you don't understand the nature of projection and um, transference and counter-transference and all those things that go on in therapy also go on in uh, pastoral counseling sessions and those kinds of things. And the, and the power that is invested in a clergy person can absolutely distort the person's sense of reality and who they are and what they're what they're entitled to, and and therapy is necessary for that. And it's not enough to confess your your egoic sins um, and, and just move on. I think you have to really work with that dark stuff all the time. And if I can just take it one step further, I think that when you read. The Bible, for example, because that's you know that's the book that I'm most familiar with, both academically and then you know, in, in my rabbinic work. You know, there are parts of the Hebrew Bible that are so violent and so dark, and it, it's the shadow side of of God, if you like, but the shadow side of the Jewish psyche for sure. And when you read those portions, the, the genocidal pieces, the misogynist pieces, those are opportunities to stop and say, "Look, here's the shadow of our." culture. Let's deal with that. Instead of saying, oh, this is divine, divinely, uh, not inspired, divine, divine sanctioned, this genocide is divinely sanctioned, and this destruction is what God wants, and this second-class status is God's will. No, these are all opportunities for us to say, wait, this is the shadow side of my, my people, my tribe, my culture, my religion, and I've got to do therapeutic work with that to take back the projection and not use it to excuse all kinds of horrendous things that uh, religion, but in this case Judaism in particular, um, excuses. Mm-hmm. So that, that kind of psychological work happens on lots of levels, individual and uh, cultural.
You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. Sounds True hosts an annual wake-up festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. This is a gathering of spiritual teachers, artists, poets, and anyone interested in the many faces of awakening. For more information about the Wake Up Festival, please visit soundstrue.com forward slash wake up. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Rami, I wanted to change the subject a little bit and talk with you about what you'll be offering at Sounds True's Wake Up Festival. When I was talking with you on the phone and asking you as we were planning your participation in the festival, what you might like to offer, you said something like, well, I'd love to do a workshop on practicing dying. What do you think of that? And I said, perfect. Tell us what you mean, practicing dying. Well, a couple of things. I mean, one, we can draw from the Sufi um, proverb, you know, die before you die, you know, learning learning to die before you die. In other words, cultivating uh, practices that take you to the edge and then stepping over that edge and dying to that egoic self, at least for a bit. So that's part of what I have in mind. I think that there are uh, tools that, that humanity has developed over the centuries, millennia, um, to bring us to that point where you can you can cross that line, um, and that's a kind of dying. But I also want to look at when you when you talk about dying immediately, the real issue isn't what comes up in people's minds is so what happens after I die, but what happens after you die is actually a reflection of what you think happens, or, or actually what you think you are now, what you think happened before you were born. And when you when you begin to contemplate death and if there's such a thing an afterlife, what you're really contemplating, or what you're really mirroring, is what you really who you really think you are now. So, for example, when um, we think about, oh, I'm really a soul, and my soul will live on after this body dies. Well, to me, that's that's a that's interesting if you believe that, and it also leaves lots of questions. So if, if I'm a soul that that uh, survives my physical death, what I a soul before I had this physical life? And if, and if either one of those is true, and usually both of them are true in people's minds, then is that soul me? Is that soul white? Is that soul in the 60s? Is that soul male? Is that soul Jewish? And if you go through these things and you realize the soul itself is, unlabeled. It doesn't have a gender. It doesn't have an age. It doesn't have... Right? And, and if it has no characteristics, no no um, labels whatsoever, is my soul different than your soul? Can there be two absolutely pure entities? Could you tell them apart? Well, I mean, what I'm going with this is ultimately, I think what you discover is, or, or at least what I would try to steal the conversation, would be to the realization that there's there is no separate soul. There is no Rami that existed before Rami was born. And there's no Rami that will survive when Rami dies. What there is, is, I would say God, but you know, there's lots of words we could use. And God manifests as Rami for as long as that manifestation lasts, and that disappears. But God doesn't. So when we're talking about preparing for our death, we're, what I have in mind is trying to realize who we are now. And in my experience... I would say that what I really am is birthless and deathless. It, it, it is those those terms don't really uh, apply. For so, you know, so you could take the Hindu analogy of the wave in the ocean. So the ocean waves, but no wave is independent of the ocean. Each wave is unique and temporary, but it's a unique and temporary manifestation of the singular ocean. So the extent to which I identify with the wave is the extent to which. I worry about what happens to me after I die. Do I go to heaven? Do I go to hell? Is there reincarnation? All those ideas are predicated on the notion that there's a me that could go to heaven or hell, uh, that could be reincarnated. And I want to explore those things for the purpose of ultimately dropping them. I mean, I'm, I'm not unbiased in this stuff. I don't insist that people agree with me, but I, I do insist about you know sharing 
all these options. And one of the options is not simply that nothing happens because you know it's all simply a materialistic existence, but that nothing happens because it's all the ocean, it's all the divine reality, it's all you know, it just does what it does, and there's nowhere to go, and because it's all one you know one singular reality. I don't know if that makes any sense, but but it's it's challenging that whole egoic structure, and looking at death helps us do that, and then merging that with practices that prepare us for death. Um, make that, I'm hoping, make that all the more real. In addition, I would just add one more thing. In addition, there are things that come from different traditions, like specifically Judaism, that are more, I guess you say, egoic. So what do I do with this temporary manifestation as I approach death? What kind of, are there things I should be doing to prepare for the end of this manifestation? And and there are, in, in in lots of traditions, certainly. Um, but in, in Judaism as well. And so I would, I'd be teaching some of those as ways of preparing yourself for that um, dissolving, that moment of dissolution, what Judaism calls the kiss of God, where the breath that God breathed into us at birth is God kisses us and takes it back. And we simply go back to being what we were before we were this. And that's the divine. So all that stuff is going to be worked into this. And, and I'm hoping it'll be a, uh, intellectually, but also spiritually evocative uh, experience for people. Can you tell me a little bit more about these practices for preparing for death? What are they? Yeah, sure. Well, so this, I mean, probably the ones we would get to, but one that I'm very fond of in Jewish tradition is called an ethical will. And, you know, I have my financial will, you know, it tells well, this is what I own and this is what I've got and this is what I want it to go to and what I want to do with it or whatever. So I'm trying to, you know, influence the material aspect of my life. But there's also what's called in Judaism's ethical will, and that's a statement of what I value. And the way I prefer to do it, it's not a list of, it's not a PowerPoint presentation of, well, I think it's good to be nice and kind and just and, and patient. I mean, that, that would be cliche, I think. So what I I think the best way to com- communicate things like like that is just story. So I have people begin to identify the key stories, the, the touchstone stories, transformative experiences that they've had in their life, positive or negative, and then retell those in short story form, but very short, right? You know, sort of like a chassidic story, five, ten sentences, you know, fifty words, seventy-five words. And um, use those as a way of communicating to children or our grandchildren um, what it is we truly we truly value. So that that's one practice that I think is is really a beautiful thing to do. So you ultimately put these stories in a book, and it's a book that you write over the last years of your life, and leave them for your kids or your grandchildren or great-grandchildren as, as a statement of what really matters to you. But you do it as kind of a series of life stories. So it's not just, okay, Grandma thinks it's important that, that we have courage, but she shows us where in her life she demonstrated that or she, she learned that, maybe by having a lack of courage. I mean, the stories have to be honest. I, I did this, I tell you, one, one of the more interesting experiences, I mean, you're a clergy person, you have a lot of these, but one that sticks out, I had a friend who died very young in Miami when I was a rabbi there. And I kept urging him because he knew he was dying. It was a long, slow death, but very, at a very young age. And I said, you got to write your ethical will because your kids are very little and they'll need this later. They can still hear from dad. And he said, yeah, 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 but he never did it. And then by the time he got around to wanting to do it, he was too weak to actually write pick up a pencil or a pen and actually write. But he was a uh, a broadcast journalist. So he had cameras set up. And on his deathbed, he told his stories. He he did his ethical will that way as best he could. And it was so moving to hear his voice. And I I actually used it. That was the eulogy. He gave his own eulogy. And we just played the tape, parts of it. Uh, And it was 
very, very powerful to hear him you know, tell us what matters to him and why it matters and some of his his story. So that that's a, a practice that I would love to get people to, to engage with and, and then take home and do. Uh, uh, just to give another example, because it could go on, I suppose, but I think that that um, chanting is also a way of dying in that we're talking about uh, like a kirtan chanting, you know, call and response or a mantra kind of chanting, and every tradition has these. But to do them, to do that rhythmic breath work through sound uh, for extended periods of time, and it's not hours, but, but actually according to what I understand the science to be, it's about 18 to 20 minutes it starts to happen at that point where you you go until you start to fade and something else uh, begins to manifest. It just impacts the brain that way. But uh, to teach that kind of practice also so that you can use that um, as, as the, I mean, I would, I would say have to use these things now to get ready, but it, it, that would be something that you could use as long as you're conscious um, as, as a way of preparing for, the, for death. So those are two, two different kinds of things that I have in mind. I'm curious, in terms of working with the energy in the body of fear, just the fear of the wave not being there anymore and just being ocean without that individuality, to use your wave and ocean metaphor, classic metaphor, how do you help people practice dying in terms of that fear? And they can feel it in their body. You know, I'm afraid. Right. I, I, you know, what, what I would, what I would do is, what I do do is, is a couple of things. One is when you, when you say you feel fear, I mean, there's an actual con- constriction of the body, a contraction of the body. So you want to be able to use the breath as best you can. You know, when you're healthy, it's a good time to practice, but you never know what you're, what you're like at the end. But to use the breath as a way of unlocking the constrictive nature of fear. And I think if the body as the body opens, the fear dissipates. It's almost like the body gets to hold the fear through the contraction. And by letting the contraction go, by loosening that contraction, the fear also goes. At the same time, there's the, the notion, you know, the fear that the wave is gone. My, you know, I'm still alive. I, I've, I've been close to death once, but not not like a near-death experience, so I don't want to over, I don't want to exaggerate my own, my own experience with this, but um, knowing, well, let me put it this way, I, I, I was once, I, I had blood clots to both lungs at one point, and I had to be rushed to the hospital, and the clot, they didn't know where the clots were coming from, they didn't know, I mean, they were going to my lungs, and not my heart, and not my brain, but, so I was lucky in that sense, and I was in terrible pain. They laid me on this metal slab in the hospital here in Murfreesboro, and they pumped me through full of heparin, and the pain subsided enough that I could talk, and I said to the doctor, can I go home now? Because I was feeling better. And the doctor says, you can't go home. You can die any moment. And then he left the room. So I'm all by myself in this terrible little uh, cell, and I'm laying on this metal plank, and I'm thinking, if I could die any second. So. I mean, first I thought it was funny. I just thought, how odd that, that, you know, this is the reality here. But I talk about this stuff all the time, but now I can actually do it. And the, what happened to me was I, I, I felt no fear. I, I just, and I'm not claiming anything for that. I'm just reporting. So I felt no fear. First I thought it was odd. Uh, and then I just did the chanting work and the breath work. And I never had the experience of that restrictive thing going on. Now, later on, when it was clear I wasn't going to die, then I got annoyed because I wanted to say, hey, wait a minute. If I'm coming that close, I want to have the tunnel. I want the light. I want to hear a voice. You know, I want to be able to write a book about it. But nothing happened. I was just in less pain, but continued pain for about a week. So I think that that uh, you have to work with the, the fear in two ways. One, you need the theology or you know, work through these ideas so you realize that, that to the extent to which you identify as the wave is the extent to which you can have that constrictive fear, and the extent to which you've learned to rest in the oceanic nature of who we are. 
is the extent that, to which you can work more effectively with the fear is less and it's easier to work with. So part of it is an intellectual thing. But part of it is just having practices, chanting, breath, breath work, maybe other things, that, that allow us to continually free the, the body from those contractions. I'm not sure how clear I am about that, but how clear I am in articulating that. But that seems to be key. I, I think you always have to start with breath, whether it's chanting meditation, walking meditation, you know, all of it. That, that breath is key because breath is going to keep me from locking up. And when I don't lock up, whatever happens, happens more gracefully. And it's sort of what the Chinese call wei wu wei, that non-coercive action. And you sort of surrender to what, or you are surrendered to whatever is happening. I think that's very clear, Rami, and very helpful. Thank you. Now, there's one other topic I wanted to talk with you about, because when you and I had that initial conversation where I was inviting you to come to the Wake Up Festival, I said, well, you're a rabbi, and you can probably teach on the topic of forgiveness, and we really need somebody at our annual festival that will help people with forgiveness work, because often that comes up for people during an intense five-day transformative experience of some kind like the festival. And you said, well, do you know my take on forgiveness, Tammy? It's a little unusual. And then you proceeded to describe it to me. It was very, very helpful to me. So I'd love it for you to share that with our listeners. What is Rabbi Rami's take on forgiveness? What I can tell you is what I... I don't know what I said to you then. I can tell you what I can tell you now. Sure. And I've written a book on forgiveness, which means it's some done with that. Now I don't have to worry about it. I published a book on it. If I want to know what I think, I can always go back and reread it. So what I think at the moment... Um, you know, Judaism is... Is my root tradition. And, and in Judaism, our focus is not so much on me uh, forgiving you, but on, uh, but, but rather on my humbling myself and asking you for forgiveness. That, to me, is the harder work. When I, when I forgive you, it's like a one-up kind of thing. You know, it's, okay, so you're, you were having a bad day, or you didn't understand, or you did something, and I'm just bigger than you are. Therefore, I forgive you. Right? That kind of forgiveness is egoic. Uh, as far as well, I you know, forgiving for my own. You know, people say, "Well, I forgive for my own benefit, so I don't have to carry this stuff around." That also sounds egoic to me. And how do I? The only way I know I've forgiven you is if I constantly remember what it is I'm forgiving you for, and constantly reinforcing how big I am that I can let it go. You know, it's, which means I haven't let it go at all. And so. But the real work, it seems to me, of forgiveness is realizing that whatever someone else has done to me, I've probably done at least the same to other people, if not that person, and maybe worse. And so in Judaism, we have this practice, and it's going to actually be during the, it's a month-long practice, and it coincides with uh, the Wake Up Festival, where you are encouraged, if not obligated, to go to everyone you know and to ask them for forgiveness. And it's just, I was going to say horribly humbling, but it's horrible, so wrong word, um, ex- exquisitely humbling experience. Because it's not that you go to the person and say, oh, remember when I ran over your dog? I'm really sorry about that. It's not like you confess. That's a different thing. It's, you, you have to think about, right, what have I done? How have I fallen short of, uh, interacting with this person the way I would prefer to have interacted. And then go to them w- with with all of that advantage in my head, not, not dump it on them and say, well, okay, now forgive me. But whether the other person forgives or not, it's my act asking for forgiveness. That is the humbling thing. And that's tough. I mean, it's like in the 12-step program where you, you make amends. It has a similar um, uh, self-humbling aspect to it. But you do it for this month. It's a very intense month. Um, but it's, it's, it's the month, it's the last month of the Hebrew year, the Jewish liturgical year, and you're preparing for the, the new year. And so you want to empty the self out of all its negativity, or as best you can, all the things you did wrong, by by just sort of 
humbling yourself, asking forgiveness. I, I don't know another way of putting it. And then from that place of emptiness to begin the, the new year fresh. So it's, it's, um, to the extent that we'll have time to do that kind of work, I mean, that's what I'll teach. That's what we're going to be, be exploring. Can you give me some examples of how that actually worked in your own life and the impact that it had on both yourself and other people, too? Yeah, sure. Um, without, I guess I don't want to say something that will then embarrass somebody else. So, so I have to be a bit vague, I guess. But oh, let's 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 say just with my son. Let's just let's pick on on my my son who's in his mid thirties now. Um, when the new year comes close, so in that last month of the year, I become painfully aware of all the places I feel I've let him down. Things I could have said that would have been more supportive, things I could have done that would have been more helpful, things I did do that were really undermining of of who he is and who he's trying to be and you know, all, all all these kinds of things. And they're normally not things that I'm aware of doing when I'm doing that. You know, I have to go back and do sort of a a a life review in a sense for the last twelve months in my connection with that with that person. So in this case, my son. And then sitting down making time, and we're not talking about hours, an hour or, or, or hours of, of encounter here, but sitting down for a few moments and just first just being present to one another and then allowing the will you forgive me, just the phrase, uh, to arise out of this, the pain I feel and the suffering I know I've caused um, all, all within my own self, and this is an egoic exercise in the sense that that I'm not confessing. I'm I'm simply tapping into that negativity or that that shame and all that guilt, and then using the the act of asking for forgiveness as a way of getting in touch with all of that, and then putting it out there. Um, I don't know if this is making any sense, but it, but that's what you do. You sort of just put it out there on on about the specifics. And so you say something like, you know, um, you know, I haven't been the dad I wanted to be. And, and yeah. I don't know how you'd actually word it, but I've had that encounter with him many times. I mean, like I said, he's in his thirties. So I've had that encounter with him and in, it's, it's very hard to articulate, but sitting there knowing what I know, and then asking from that knowing, there is a deep cracking of all the guilt and shame that I've been carrying. And you now, theoretically, you want him to say something that's healing and welcoming and affirming and making room for me and all my brokenness in his life. I mean, you know, whatever he says. But according to the Jewish tradition, even if he says, no, I don't forgive you, I, I hate your guts, you ask three times different times you can't just say, oh, really? Please forgive me. Please forgive me. You have to go back and try again. But if, at the end of three times, if if he doesn't forgive, the, the tradition says, I'm forgiven regardless. Because again, it's not him bestowing some magic healing bomb on me. It's me continuing to, to look at the hurt and the suffering I've caused and to let that break my egoic self. And in that brokenness, to present myself to him as this imperfect person. And somehow there's a healing in that brokenness, a healing in that imperfection. And I know that with him, there have been times when it's been, you know, more tense than others. And by going to him and going through that exercise, I drop the, actually you could use the same thing that we talked about at death. I drop that constrictive sense of me. I drop the defensiveness. I drop the, Oh, the barriers that I've built to protect the mistakes I've made from getting out or, you know, being admitted or whatever it is. And in that, in that brokenness without those barriers, there's just a sense of what Martin Buber might call that I-thou connection, where I see him as a manifestation of the divine and I know myself to be, not intellectually, but on a visceral level, know myself to be the manifestation of the divine. And there's just love of God from God. There's just a sense of compassion and forgiveness that just happens when you break that way. I don't know if that's as, as explicit as you're looking for, but 
maybe that helps. It does. I love the example. The example really helps me and helps me understand the humbling nature of the process. So thank you. But now I want to underscore one thing, because when you and I were talking previously, you actually, as you mentioned, might have approached forgiveness from a very different angle, and you did, which is fine. I know these are all different facets of teaching on forgiveness. But what you talked about was how when you understand somebody is just the way they are, that it's really nothing to do with you personally. It's kind of like that's the kind of animal that person is or was acting in that moment. You can let it go. And I wonder if you can speak to that because what you said really helped me. So maybe you remember now what our conversation was about. Okay. Well, I, I don't remember anything, but I do. I can speak to that. So, yeah, my, my, I don't want to say I'm a determinist, but I think what happens happens because at the moment it happens, nothing else can happen. And so if someone, I'll make this context. This was a long, a while ago, and I don't think anyone would, would even remember it. But um, when I was in rabbinical school, one of the things you have to do to get your ordination, your degree after five years, is give a public talk that's videotaped, that's replayed. You give it on a Saturday, it's replayed on a Monday. And the entire student body and faculty is invited to watch it, and then they're supposed to critique it. And they not only critique your delivery, but they critique content. And I gave my thing, whatever it was. And the first person to respond, well, there were a couple of people who just said very nice things. It was just sort of hallmarky kind of statements. But the first person to really take it seriously and to respond was my best friend, who ripped it to shreds, who claimed that I didn't believe a word I was saying. He just really did whatever it seemed to me at the time, anyway. He did whatever he did to tear it down and to tear me down with it. And there was, at the moment, that was happening, and I was devastated. I mean, boy, at two brute, you know, that kind of thing. I really felt betrayed by the guy I was closest to. But subsequently, looking back at it, knowing him even more, because we've stayed friends all these years, it, it, it wasn't a choice on his part. It was who he was then, in a situation where he felt whatever he felt, I don't know, competitive or, or threatened or whatever it was, I have no idea. And his response was just a natural outpouring of the moment, and he really had no choice. He, if he could have responded differently, he would have responded differently, but he couldn't. He did what he did, because at the moment, he did it. He really couldn't do anything else. And as soon as you realize that about others, and yourself for that matter, but you have to be a little more careful about that. But when you realize it about other people, you know, what's, what's there to forgive? It's, I mean, it's just, you're not the target. Um, and, and, you know, don't, don't take it personally. Not, I don't mean on an egoic level, but don't take anything personally. You're not, nothing is aimed at me. It, stuff just happens, and I happen to be there. His response to, to what I did had really nothing to do with what I did something that he needed at that moment, and, and that's how it came out. I, I think recognizing that, um, again, I don't like the word determination, the, the determinative, like it's destined or predestined, but that lack of choice, recognizing that lack of choice is freeing. Then I don't, well, look, that's what he had to do, so that's what he did. Um, my response to it at the moment was exactly what had to happen at that moment. But going back and looking at it, I'm freer from that moment because it's you know in the past. Now it's way in the past. But even shortly thereafter, you, you start to look at it and, and you're more free from it. And then recognizing that it isn't personal just allows you to go, all right, what's next? Not to forgive, not to forget, just to move on. Mm-hmm. Rami, I want to ask you one final question which really ties our conversation back to the beginning, which is here we are in a new time in our evolution, our evolution spiritually as a Western culture where people are exploring now in so many different traditions. You teach as a rabbi. What do you see as the future of how a tradition like Judaism 
will live on in the midst of what some people are calling an interspiritual age, a time when people are really moving away from traditional religions and finding that commonality and not necessarily investing in being part of any tradition. What do you see as the future here? And that's how we're going to end. We should have started with that, and it would take five hours. But okay, let me see what I can do. Um, let, me, let me just question the premise for a second and then answer the question. So I wonder if we're in fact a new stage of, of spiritual evolution. Some people are. I would imagine most people aren't. So with that in mind, most Jews are going to do exactly what, you know, in, in, in the next 50 years, most Jews will do exactly what they're doing now. And that means 10% of them will be very observant and 90% of them will be very non-observant and it won't have any impact whatsoever. Those people who are what I call the spiritually independent, especially like the spiritual version of the politically independent person. They like some of the Democrat ideas, they like some of the Green ideas, they like some of the Republican ideas, but they're not willing to align with any one party. So the spiritually independent person finds truth in a lot of different religions. Those people are the ones that really interest me. And I, I find myself in that, in that camp. What's going to happen to those people, I think, will depend upon the degree to which they realize or we realize that practice trumps talk. That if we just talk about interspirituality, if we go to conferences, which I have a big conference coming up this weekend uh, called The Big Eye here in Nashville, uh, if we just talk about this stuff, it's just an entertainment. So we have to actually do something, and there's, you know, whether it's meditation or contemplation or centering prayer or chanting, whatever it is, we have to engage in spiritual practices that actually take us into a different mindset, this, this interspiritual mindset. So if, if I can, I don't know how much time we have, but let, let me try to put this in a, in a in a context that may make sense. I look at religion as the way I look at language. Uh, no language is true. No language is false. Each language comes out of a specific cultural, historical milieu. It has strengths. Um, English is better at science than it is at um, love poetry. Persian is better at love poetry and mystical poetry than English is, I think. And they each have their own strengths. They each have their own weaknesses. And truly, when we said this in the beginning, being multilingual, uh, what has to happen is the more, just like with language, the more languages I know, the more nuanced my experience of reality is. The more religions I know, the more spiritual practices I know, the more nuanced my experience of reality, maybe with a capital R as well as a lowercase r is. The future of the, the spiritual independence, or what I call seekers without borders, the future of, of this small group, and it's, it's right now, it, according to the Pew Forum poll, it's 20% of, of the American population. I bet a fraction of those are the people we're really talking about. So it's, it's millions, but it's not, you know, it's not the dominant group. But that, that group of people, those, those who are the true seeker without, seekers without borders, are truly spiritually independent, I think what's going to happen is they're going to find two things. One, they'll probably find themselves more comfortable in one language than another. So for me, that language is Judaism, either because they were raised in it or because just for some reason they, they gravitate toward a certain language, Buddhist language or Hindu language or Sufi language, whatever it is, or, or you know, one of the different kinds of Christian languages. So they might find themselves more with a, with a mother tongue, if you like, a language that there's their, which is their everyday language. But they'll realize that no language is sufficient unto itself and that you need to learn the other. So they begin to say, okay, I'm building on my Jewish language, but I'm adding to it insights from Hinduism and Buddhism and Taoism, etc. And those people will maintain a, a dialogue where the languages become more and more interchangeable, inter interconnected, uh, where the dialogue can happen at a very high level where we're, we're 
using these words as fingers pointing to this you know, reality beyond which that, that can't be named. And that, to me, is the most exciting thing. I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, that's I, what I don't want to happen is a spiritual Esperanto. You know, we shouldn't have one language. But what probably will happen, what I'm hoping will happen, is that as we get more adept at using language, we ultimately learn to drop it. And then we learn to sit together in silence and see what happens, as opposed to, to frame it in some, in some linguistic way first. What happens to Judaism itself? Probably not much. What happens to some Jews? Probably very revolutionary. What happens to Christianity? Probably not much. What happens to some Christians, like Cynthia Bourgeau and others? Something very revolutionary. So I, I, I don't know if that really answers the question, but I, I don't think there's a definitive way or a, a saying, okay, this is what's going to happen. We're all moving in this direction. I, I don't think we are. Some, some of us are at one level, some at another, and they each have their own destiny. Very good. I thought you did a great job of answering my question in about five minutes instead of five hours, and so I really appreciate that. <laughs> and I appreciate our whole conversation. If I had five hours, I just would have repeated it more. <laughs> I've been speaking with Rabbi Rami Shapiro, and Rami will be a featured presenter at Sounds True's annual Wake Up Festival which takes place August 14th through the 18th of 2013 in Estes Park, Colorado. And if you're interested in more information on the Wake Up Festival, that's available at wakeupfestival.com. Rami, thank you so much. Tammy, thank you. This is a pleasure. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening. <laughs>